Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Father, thank you so much uh, that you are a God that holds all things in your hands, that you are a God that loves the nations, uh, that you loved the nations we came from, um, and that you were merciful. Uh, Thank you that you covet worship from your image bearers, and that we can live uh, our lives uh, to fulfill that um, as worshipers of you, Lord. Uh, We pray that all the earth will worship you. Um, We pray that we will be obedient to the mission uh, that you have set forth for us in the works that you have prepared for us beforehand. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, the topic I kind of just randomly came up, not really, um, is post-millennial missions for sustainable kingdom building. Um, And the reason why I was very interested in this is because I've been involved uh, for quite a number of years with missions. I would probably say my whole family is involved with it. Um, My dad uh, received his PhD in the mid-90s from RTS Jackson in missiology, which is the study of missions. And then both my sisters have been on the mission field um, in Iraq and the Middle East and all kinds of places. So I think as a family, we have a a big passion for missions. Um, My dad and I are very uh, post-mill leaning, or probably I should just say post-mill. so understanding how that impacts uh, missions is important. And kind of the typical evangelical view of missions is very much uh, focused on a kind of a premillennial dispensationalist view, uh, which I think has some great, great things for it. Uh, you know, there's a lot of passion to evangelize the world. Uh, but I also think there are some things that uh, we should be aware of and how our worldview Uh, in terms of eschatology uh, affects uh, how we disciple the nations. So um, with that said, I'll I'll go over a little bit of a review of missions and missiology. Uh, uh, Daniel did a great job a couple of weeks ago doing that uh, already, so I'm not, uh, hopefully I won't be plagiarizing too much. Um, But I figured it'd be kind of cool. I especially wanted to point out something Uh, I think a lot of times in evangelical Christian circles, we focus a lot on the Great Commission, uh, which is really good. So I wanted to kind of uh, mention a couple of things that I really love from the Old Testament regarding Israel's place in, uh, maybe we should call evangelizing the nations. Today we will say discipling the nations. Um, So I'm going to point out a couple. The first is Jonah going to Nineveh, Um, and he didn't want to. He was kind of just like, I want to be here with my people. Um, But God commanded him to go to Nineveh and go prophecy to them and call them to repentance. Um, And it wasn't something that was done in a way where he was going to do anything really nice. He was really saying, look, you're living in sin. You're living in wickedness. Repent of that and turn around because... God is a just God, and he will not leave uh, the, uh, the wicked unpunished. So there's, uh, there's definitely something to be said for that. 
in that Israel was a priestly nation. So if we read Genesis 12:3, uh, basically God says to Abraham, and in all the families of the earth, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we clearly see that uh, there's, there's something, a prophecy being made about how Everyone on the earth will be blessed. Jesus didn't just come for the Jews or the Israelites or the Hebrews. He came for all the families of the earth. Um, another thing that I think really ties in with the story of Jonah is Exodus 19, 4 through 6. And it says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And I think that's really, really neat because I think God's vision for Israel was really to declare God's glory to all of the world. To go everywhere and say, hey, Yahweh is God, you know. So I think it's, it's, it's really neat. Uh, a couple of more passages that I'm going to read. Uh, Psalm 67 says, God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. So if you go through, I saw a speaker once, and he highlighted every psalm that deals with declaring God's glory to the nations. And if you flip through the psalms, I mean, it's just like every other one it feels like, you know, is dealing with this topic of, hey, Israel is a priestly nation. Um, and of course, now we are the church today. We'll, we'll get more into that later. So we have that role as well. All right, so I guess maybe a year or so ago, we did do a wonderful uh, course. I think Gage and, and Jeremy taught a course on eschatology. So I'm going to go over a little bit of eschatology just to kind of give you an introduction on how all these things tie together. Uh, so typically, um, there's a couple of different uh, eschatological views. Um, Eschatology just means, you know, the, the last times of, or how things ends in Greek. So um, we kind of just think about how does it impact how we think the world's going to end? How's everything going to culminate? Um, so there's a verse in Revelation, and it talks about a thousand years. For the life of me, I don't remember what verse it is. Revelation 26. I think. I had it written down. Uh, but it talks about the millennium. And uh, so different people have different views on what that millennium looks like. There's a view that basically deals with this verse and says, Christ will return before a period of peace of a thousand years. Um, this is typically known as either historical or dispensational premillennialism. Um, I think the the, the the impression I get is that the dominant view amongst evangelicals today are dispensational premillennialism. Um, and Jer Jeremy Brown did a really great job kind of covering that in his talk. So I, I definitely 
uh, recommend going to listen to his talk. Um, so the, a lot of the people that are kind of in that camp grew up on the Left Behind series. So they have this view that um, believers are going to be raptured away. So we're going to have really, really bad times. Then all the good people are going to be raptured away, and there's going to be this just really awful time. Um, and that really affects missions, I think, because uh, the thing I always say is, like, why polish the brass on a sinking ship, right? Like, if you're just going to be raptured away and be in heaven, why even worry about, you know, the earth just getting worse and worse and worse? And, I mean, if you look at the news these days, I can understand why people believe that, because, you know, it's all doom and gloom all the time, it seems like. Um, so... I'm not going to talk too much about all the different views. Uh, there's amillennialism. I think amillennialism and postmillennialism have more in common. Um, and a lot of the instances of, of reformed missionaries that I'm going to talk about are going to be for, uh, they're probably going to have an amillennial or a postmillennial view. Um, but amillennialism, you could almost say, I, I would say amillennialism literally means no millennium. And I wouldn't say amillennialists necessarily think that way. I would say it's more like a symbolic millennium. Uh, so I think we can have some commonality there in that we could still be optimistic as amillennialists for those who hold that view. Um, but so that's what they believe. So a little more about postmillennialism and why I think this is awesome. So. Basically, postmillennialists say Christ will return after a period of peace and Christendom that lasts for a thousand years. Um, it has an optimistic view of history. Um, we anticipate a golden age of righteousness and peace. Um, and we, I mean, if you see any society anywhere in the world that's existed, when Christianity comes in, things are transformed. Uh, there's a story that I, I actually met this missionary. He flew into Papua New Guinea with his wife and a toddler um, and, and just lived with this tribe of complete savages. And he started explaining to them Genesis and the, the fact that God made man and woman and he called creation good. And these tribesmen were at the time beating their wives with uh, wattle sticks they were so afraid of women that the women lived in a separate part of the house. Uh, just terrible abuses. And they, were, they, they just thought women were demon-possessed. And when they understood the story of Genesis, we haven't even gotten to the gospel yet, but when they understood how God created in his creational order, they literally broke down the walls of hostility that was between them and their wives. Um, and it's just a, an amazing story of how the gospel transforms societies as a whole. And for this tribe, the elders basically had a three-day and three-night-long, very ironic, uh, powwow, if you will, where they argued and debated about this new truth that they've learned. And they decided, we as a whole nation, because they're an ethnic group, they have their own language, they live remote in the mountains, they decided, hey, we're going to follow Jesus. Um, and so a nation was discipled. Not some people out of a nation, but a whole nation. So I think, I think it's really neat. Um, let's see. There's the Great Commission and the Cultural Mandate. Um, I think it's a driving force for missions in post-millennialism um, because we, we see a view that, hey, we're going to go forth and conquer 
the world for Christ and that we want to see it permeate in all parts of societies. Let's see what else did I, ha did I have on here. I think, yeah, I, I mean, in terms of post-millennial missions, uh, social transformation happens. Um, I don't think it's a primary uh, objective. Uh, like I mentioned, I think the gospel does that. When uh, the gospel is properly preached and uh, new converts understand that it, it's not just about something that you're having, and thank you so much, Gideon, you're the best, that, that you're having on Sundays, but it's something that permeates every day of the week. Okay, so that's a little bit more about why I think post-millennialism is very optimistic in, in discipling the nations. So I'm going to go over a couple of really neat um, stories about missionaries that were kind of in the reform tradition, were very optimistic and had a long-term view like post-millennialists uh, have. Um, so a lot of times what you'll hear is that people in the reformed world are a little bit fatalistic. Maybe they don't really care about missions because you know what, God's sovereign and he's going to save who he wants to save and, and whatnot. And, um, so, uh, you know, in the perspectives course, which, you know, I facilitated, a, a lot of times they will say, well, you know, the Protestant Reformation happened, and then several hundred years went by before missions actually became a thing, except for the Moravians. They were the only, like, early, you know, reformers that were, were missionaries. But there are actually uh, a lot of different uh, earlier examples. And the one example that I thought was very uh, interesting is, uh, from France in 1555, which is pretty early on, the French Huguenots decided, hey, we want to see Brazil captured for Christ. We want to go declare the gospel amongst the Indians, uh, the Brazilian Indians, and the Portuguese that live there. And so they, they went there, and they faced uh, martyrdom and very strong opposition from the Je Jesuits' papists. Um, so there was a guy named Jean Boileau, I'm probably mispronouncing that, he was a Huguenot missionary. Uh, the Portuguese captured him in his settlement of French Huguenots that were just doing amazing work amongst uh, the Native Americans and bringing them to Christ and threw him in prison for eight years. Uh, they actually exiled him from Brazil and uh, they couldn't really stop the, the movement that was going on. So they brought him back to Brazil and publicly executed him eight years later. Um, and so there's some letters that Calvin wrote urging on Huguenots to go and disciple the nations. So it's not, uh, not something that uh, we are fatalistic about. It is something that we see as a part of God's mission. Another really neat uh, missionary that I uh, found was Willis Banks. Uh, he also went to Brazil. Uh, he was a Presbyterian minister. Uh, he went to southern Brazil. And he went there and had some, some trouble kind of sharing the gospel. So what he started is he built a brickyard. He fostered children. Uh, he opened a school. He, he got like a physician's desk reference type of book. And he started treating the ailments of the, the people there. And pretty soon, his church was filling up with people that were very interested in uh, what was going on. And he made many, many uh, disciples in that place. Um, and so he, he didn't just have an approach of, oh, I'm going to 
just make a few converts and that's it. He really tried to permeate the gospel into a lot of what they were doing there. Uh, 20 years later, this is in the, the village of Volta Grande, um, where he lived, an anthropologist came through and he was amazed at the high literacy rate of the people there and that there was basically this little village in southern Brazil that of all Presbyterians, you know. Uh, they were well-educated, all, uh, you know, like I said, high literary, literary, literacy rate, um, and they were just amazed uh, what was happening. There's also Gimnasio de Lavras, uh, which is a, a college for men that was started by the PCUS, the Southern Mission, way back in the 1800s, so that's when they were still cool. But, um, yeah, uh, same thing, you know, they just really transformed this whole area with, um, with people coming to know Christ and then going in, and, and a lot of these people would actually go into politics, uh, is what, uh, I read this archive.org, really old newsletter of the PCUS from the late 1800s where they were kind of giving a report on this. Uh, but it was just amazing to see uh, how their faith were impacting them to even participate in Brazilian politics of the region. Um, and, and the other thing that was funny is like all the influential people would send their children to this Presbyterian Christian school because they wanted a good education and they were getting it there. And so through that, you know, a lot of things were, were transformed in the area. And we at Trinity have a, a big emphasis on understanding that our children are precious and very important education of our children are, is very important. So I thought that was really great. Um, other other mission, uh, missionaries that I thought was interesting, uh, the Presbyterians uh, missions in Thailand built 13 hospitals throughout Thailand and set up 12 pharmacies. Um, so. How hard would it be to set up a hospital? It's not a trivial task. Uh, but they were very zealous for seeing a long-term vision of Christ uh, in those societies, and they were there to stay. They weren't just there thinking, well, tomorrow it's all going to end. They were building um, something sustainable. Um, so I'm going to read a really neat quote I got. Uh, there's a really great book uh, called On Earth As in Heaven. Uh, by this guy named Peter Lightheart. I don't know if anybody's familiar with him. Just kidding. Uh, but let me read it. The Theo, the Theopo, I, I can't pronounce this word. My throat is too dry. Let me take a little bit of water here. The Theopolitan vision is a view of the church and her role in the world. The church is an outpost of the future city of God. The city of God exists now in the present as a real-life society among the societies of men. This real-world, visible community is the family of the Father, the body of the Son, the temple of the Spirit. And I thought that just really encapsulated how I think we need to think about missions um, and that it starts with worship. Um, so we, we talk a lot about uh, the cultural mandate. We talk about the Great Commission. And uh, Lightheart and, and Jordan kind of have this view of like the, I don't know which one it is, but the liturgical mandate that is, you know, basically the idea that since the Garden of Eden, we've been worshiping. And so I think that if we're going to build these kind of, if we're going to replicate what our forefathers have done in terms of sustainable long-term missions, it really starts with our worship.
And I think it, it, it motivates us to uh, evangelism uh, because we believe, we believe that the church is the, the core of transformation. So yeah, so I think what we're doing here at Trinity is, is a beginning. Um, we have to get our own house in order. When the reformers were uh, basically living in a, a Catholic world where there was a lot of paganism mixed with, uh, with just Catholicism, if you will, uh, they had to transform their own society first. Uh, so there was a lot of evangelism that was going on in those societies. Um, and they had to build a church there. Uh, I always say, like, why would you run to your neighbor's house and put out the fire when your own house is on fire and your kids are in the bedroom? You would probably run in first, get your kids out, and then you would go help your neighbor. Um, or, you know, if you're on an airplane, I always say, put your oxygen mask on first before you help your neighbor put theirs on. So I think that... Uh, it starts inside the church. We built the church, and we, we conquer from a position of strength uh, instead of a position of weakness. Um, so I think there's a big mission field right here now. Now, some people are going to feel called to go to the ends of the earth, um, as we are called to do, absolutely. But when you look in Acts 1 where he uh, talks about that, he says, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So I think, you know, we start here, we come from a position of strength, and we do it through the church. Um, another really cool quote uh, related to that, this time it's James Jordan that I'll read for you. Uh, I found this on biblicalhorizons.com, but it, he said, God plants the church in specific places to exercise dominion over those places. The church does this by faithfully obeying God in worship, weekly communion with real bread and real wine, singing all the Psalms and other biblical Bible songs, excommunicating rebels, recognizing the government of other churches, tithing, praying specifically for the people within our area, whether believers or not, and so forth. But there is more. The church is to claim territory. The old world for this, the old word for this is parish. And so we have parishes here. Really cool, right? The church governs a parish spiritually, and within her parish, she oversees what is going on. A full parish is about the size of a political precinct in our state-centered age. Um, and so that's what we're doing. We're going parish by parish, every square inch, as Kuiper said, and we, we are going to take it for Christ in a very real way. Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Amen.